Section 5 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 20, March 16, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Phipps. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 20, March 16, 1880. The Mishaps of an Arab Gentleman. The Orientals differ in many respects from the Europeans and Americans in their customs and manners, their dress, and the furniture of their houses. The dress of the men consists of a red cap, wide baggy cloth trousers, silken girdle, and a jacket. The houses in Syria are invariably built of stone, and in the south of Palestine, entirely so. The floors of the rooms are paved with marble or granite. At the entrance of every room is a space of several feet square, paved with figured marble and never carpeted, generally used as a receptacle for shoes and slippers, which the Orientals remove from their feet on entering a room. The rest of the floor is raised about half a foot higher. The Orientals sleep on the ground, that is, on mattresses laid on carpets or mats spread on the floor. In an Arab family, one of the members became ambitious of transforming himself into a European. This young gentleman had received an excellent education, being familiar not only with the Arab literature, but master of the ancient and modern Greek. His first step toward the desired end was to study English and French. When he had gained a fair knowledge of these languages, he applied for the position of interpreter to the American consulate, to which he succeeded in being appointed. His so far satisfied ambition would no longer allow him to wear the oriental dress, and he soon showed himself to an admiring world of natives in European costume. One day he was asked how he liked his new costume. Not at all, he replied. I feel as if tied hand and foot in a tight-fitting prison. A few weeks later, he one day startled some of his European friends by asking them, with a thoughtful seriousness, whether they often tumbled out of bed. Tumble out of bed? they exclaimed. Why, of course not. How could one? I would much rather find out how a person could not, was his reply. He was asked what put such an idea into his head. The rest is best told in his own words. I furnish my rooms with European furniture. Bad luck to the day I was foolish enough to do so. A few nights ago, after having locked my door and put out my light, things I never did before, I got up into the bedstead. My sensations were those of being put away on a high shelf in a dark prison. I wondered whether Europeans experienced such feelings every night. Finally, I fell asleep, comforting myself that I might get used to it. How long I slept in that bed, I shall never know, for when I awoke, it was to find myself in the grave. I was cramped in every limb, I felt the cold pavement under me, and icy walls round me. For clothing or covering, I found nothing within reach, but what at the time seemed a shroud. Where was I? What had happened? Suddenly the idea came to me that I must have fainted, been mistaken for dead, buried, and now recovered consciousness in my grave. So convinced was I that I shouted at the top of my voice that I was not dead and begged to be taken out of the tomb. The noise I made soon awoke the whole house, and as I had locked my door, no one could get in. 
I heard my mother and brothers uttering pious ejaculations to exorcise the evil spirit which they believed had got hold of me, while I trebled my frantic yells for deliverance. By vigorously shaking the door, they finally burst it open, and then I was surprised to see that I was not in my grave, but that I had tumbled out of bed and rolled along the floor till I landed in the space by the door. But did you not wake with the fall? No. I felt nothing till I awoke, as I believed, in my tomb, but really in the shoe receptacle. And since you all assure me that Europeans never tumble out of their beds, I resign all hopes of ever being transformed into one. I shall in the future, as I have done in the past, sleep on the ground, from which there is no danger of tumbling. The Hippopotamus the hippopotamus, or river horse, is found exclusively in the great rivers, lakes and swamps of Africa. Fossil remains of extinct species have been discovered in both Europe and Asia, but ages have passed since they existed. This animal is amphibious and can remain underwater five minutes or more without breathing. When it comes to the surface, it snorts in a terrible manner and can be heard at a great distance. It is never found far away from its native element, to which it beats a retreat at the least alarm. Travellers along the White Nile and in Central Africa often encounter enormous herds of these ungainly creatures, sometimes lying in the water, their huge heads projecting like the summit of a rock, sometimes basking on the shore in the muddy ooze or grazing on the riverbank. For this animal is a strict vegetarian, and the broad fields of grain and rice along the upper Nile suffer constantly from its depredations. The hippopotamus is a hideous-looking beast. It has an enormous mouth armed with four great tusks that appear viciously prominent beneath its great leathern lips. These tusks are so powerful that a hippopotamus has been known to cut holes through the iron plates of a Nile steamer with one blow. Its eyes are very small, but protruding, and placed on the top of its head. Its body resembles a huge hogshead, perched on four short, stumpy legs. A full-grown animal will sometimes measure 12 feet in length, and as much in circumference. The hide of this beast is very thick and strong, and is used to make whips. Ordinary bullets, unless they strike near the ear, rattle off the sides of this king of the Nile like small shot. Sir Samuel Baker, the African traveller, relates an encounter with a large bull hippopotamus which was taking an evening stroll on the bank of the river, quietly munching grass. Baker and his attendant were armed only with rifles. They aimed and fired, hitting as near the ear as possible, but the great beast only shook its head and trotted off. At the sound of firing, the remainder of the party hurried up and poured a volley of musketry at the retreating beast. But the hippopotamus walked coolly to the edge of a steep cliff, about 18 feet high, and with a clumsy jump and a tremendous splash, vanished in the water. As the flesh of the hippopotamus, which is said to resemble pork in flavour, was much desired as food by the soldiers under Baker's charge, he had a small explosive shell constructed, which, fired into the creature's brain, seldom failed to leave its huge body floating dead on the surface of the river. The natives are very fond of hippopotamus flesh, and resort to many expedients to secure the desired delicacy. Hunting this beast is dangerous sport, 
for in the water it is master of the situation and will throw a canoe in the air or crunch it to pieces with its terrible jaws. In southern Africa, Dr. Livingstone encountered a tribe of natives called Makombwe, who were hereditary hippopotamus hunters, and followed no other occupation, as when their game grew scarce at one spot, they removed to another. They built temporary huts on the lonely grassy islands in the rivers and great lakes, where the hippopotami were sure to come to enjoy the luxurious pasturage, and while the women cultivated garden patches, the men, with extraordinary courage and daring, followed the dangerous sport which passes down among them from father to son. When they hunt, each canoe is manned by two men. The canoes are very light, scarcely half an inch in thickness, and shaped somewhat like a racing boat. Each man uses a broad, short paddle, and as the canoe is noiselessly propelled toward a sleeping hippopotamus, not a ripple is raised on the water. Not a word passes between the two hunters, but as they silently approach the prey, the harpooner rises cautiously and with sure aim plunges the weapon toward the monster's heart. Both hunters now seize their paddles and push away for their lives, for the infuriated beast springs toward them, its enormous jaws extended, and often succeeds in crushing the frail canoe to splinters. The hunters, if thrown in the water, immediately dive, as the beast looks for them on the surface, and make for the shore. Their prey is soon secured, for the well-aimed harpoon has done its work, and the hippopotamus is soon forced to succumb. Should it be underwater, its whereabouts is indicated by a float on the end of the long harpoon rope, and it is easily dragged ashore. Travellers on the Nile are often placed in great peril by the attacks of these beasts, which although said to be inoffensive when not molested, are so easily enraged that the noise of a passing boat excites them to terrible fury. Baker relates being roused one clear moonlight night by a hoarse, wild snorting, which he at once recognised as the voice of a furious hippopotamus. He rushed on deck and discovered a large specimen of this beast charging on the boat with indescribable rage. The small boats, towed astern, were crunched to pieces in a moment, and so rapid were the movements of this animal, as it roared and plunged in a cloud of foam and wave, that it was next to impossible to take aim at the small, vulnerable spot on its head. At length, however, it appeared to be wounded, and retired to the high reeds along the shore. But it soon returned, snorting and blowing more furiously than ever, and continued its attack until its head was fairly riddled with bullets, and it rolled over and over, dead at last. Young hippopotami have been captured and placed in zoological gardens, but as they become old, they grow savage and are very hard to manage. Some fine specimens were formerly in the Jardin de Plantes at Paris. They ate all kinds of vegetables and grass and slept nearly all day, generally lying half in and half out of the big water tank provided for them. The hippopotamus is supposed by many to be identical with the behemoth of scripture, which is described as a beast that lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. It is also spoken of as one that eateth grass as an ox, and that drinketh up a river, and the willows of the brook compass him about. End of section 5